Take your Bibles again this morning, please, to the 17th chapter, the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ just before He goes across the Kidron and enters into the Garden of Gethsemane. This is recorded in John chapter 17. We began last week to examine this prayer. And when one compares the two prayers, the one that Jesus prayed here in John 17 with the prayer that uh, Jesus gave in the Garden of Gethsemane, we notice that uh, some have argued that that it's the same prayer. But uh, I do not believe it is, and and I believe the 18th chapter, the first verse of the 18th chapter of John makes that very clear, that he prayed this before after he spoke the words that in chapter the end of chapter 13 through chapter 16, and then he prayed this prayer, then they crossed the Kidron and entered into the Garden of Gethsemane. So they're, they're two distinctly different prayers. This one is his high priestly prayer, and it focuses on the disciples' welfare after his departure, when he leaves and goes away. When he goes to the cross and then is resurrected and ascended to the Father's right hand. But the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane focuses on the Savior's submission to the will of God. I think that's the distinction. But this high priestly prayer then ties to what he has already said in the previous chapters. And particularly the end there when it's in chapter 16, verse 33, where it says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. We live in a world that hates Jesus. We have long lived in a, in a culture that has tolerated Jesus. And many communities have have high regard for Jesus, but in, in general, the world hates him, as he says, and it hates us too. So here in this prayer, Jesus then informed the disciples that when they suffered, the Father would be looking out for them. Like Ron said, he loves us, he cares for us, and so he looks out for us and he protects us. And he keeps us, and but he also uses us. And that's the glorious thing. He, we carry on the work that Jesus began in his public ministry. His people carry it on. And will carry it on until Jesus Christ comes back again. So he prayed this prayer in their audience because they needed to hear it. They needed to hear Jesus talk to his heavenly Father and express the truths that we find here. So they needed to know that the Father truly loved them and that Jesus came to save them. And they also needed to understand that Jesus' departure would not leave them without help. But the Comforter would come, the Holy Spirit, whom the Savior would send in his name. And... uh, he would become their companion, and he is our companion. And 
you had better be walking in the Spirit if you're a Christian. You have the Holy Spirit. He has been given to you as a helper, as a partner. And we are commanded in Scripture, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. It's not, and it's not a manifest by all kinds of weird things either. Jabbering in unknown tongues and jumping up and down and stiff-legged or, or all that, that. It is practical, real help in our Christian life as we live out the truth of Scripture. In fact, the, script, the Spirit of God guides us in all truth. This is the truth. He's the Spirit of truth. This is the tr truth. Jesus is the truth. The, the Word of God is the truth. So, then as we previously noted there in John chapter 17, uh, this John chapter 17 can be divided into three sections. We have three sections here. Jesus prays for Himself, which is the first five verses. We're looking at that this morning. Then, Jesus prays for His disciples. That's verses 6 through 19. And then thirdly, Jesus prays for His church. For all those who would come to Christ through the ministry of the disciples. That's verses 12 through, or excuse me, 20 through 26. So two points are seen here in Jesus' prayer for Himself that I want to point out. First is the faithful Son and then the fruitful Son. He is the Son. He's looking to His Heavenly Father now as, as He prepares Himself to go to the cross. And, he, and so the first thing I want you to notice here is that He talks about the hour. He says, Father, the hour has come. This is a, this is a common theme throughout the Gospel of John. It's pretty much... Uh, centered only in the Gospel of John, but it's a common theme throughout the Gospel of John. This hour is a reference to His work of redemption on the cross, which includes His death and His resurrection, and will lead to His glorification, which is a major theme of the Gospel. So, first of all, notice the reference, uh, the references to his hour, up until chapter 12, he keeps saying his hour had not yet come. His hour has not yet come. But in, in the 12th chapter, when the, they, some Gentiles approach him, they want to see him. They, these Gentiles came to, to Jerusalem to worship during the feast time, and so now they seek out Jesus and said, ask his disciples there in the 12th chapter, we'd, sir, we would see Jesus. I love that little phrase. I mean, that's one of my favorite verses. Sir, we would see Jesus. So they bring uh, these Gentiles, to, or they go to Jesus and they say, There's, these Gentiles want to see you. And what was Jesus' response to that? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I mean, that's kind of interesting. I think the reason is because it's his death and resurrection that opens the gospel not just to the, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Because it's interesting that in, through, in the gospels we find Jesus sending out his disciples to preach in the towns and the villages and he commands them specifically go not but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
the gospel is not going to go to the ends of the earth until Jesus is raised and ascended and seated on high and given the kingship of the kingdom. Then the gospel is open to the whole world. So now these Gentiles are kind of a key. They're kind of a symbol. They're kind of a uh, statement here that 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 hour has come and that Jesus Christ should be glorified. Now, the first mention, and I think this is important, the first mention of this hour is way back there in the second chapter when Jesus began his public ministry. He and his disciples were invited to a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Which is interesting because it's kind of that's kind of Gentile territory. So he's invited here to this wedding. And during this wedding, remember, these weddings lasted seven days. This is not just an hour or two hours or an evening. These lasted seven full days. And while they're in the midst of this celebration, his mother comes to him because she's dependent on him. And the reason she's dependent on him is because I think Joseph is gone by this time. And Jesus, being the oldest son, is now in care of his widowed mother and provides for his widowed mother. And so she is, she's accustomed to coming to him when there's a need and, and seeking him to fix that need. So this is what happens at this particular point. She, had, she comes to him and advises him that the wine had run out. Now, th- that's also interesting. Because wine was a very significant and important part of a wedding celebration. So if you're going to cater a wedding that lasts for seven days, you want to make sure that you have adequate supplies. We don't know where in, in, in the, uh, this seven days this occurs, but it is, it's obviously it's, a, it's an important problem and it's a failure here. And she comes to Jesus Because I believe she expected her son to somehow fix it. Which also tells me that Mary probably had some uh, role in it. Maybe it's a a relative that's being married here. It was the bridegroom's responsibility to provide for the wine. So, but she is, she's concerned about it. And she comes to him and she says, uh, the, the, the wine has run out. And she expected Jesus to intervene. But here's the interesting response. And it's initially a denial. Woman. Which, by the way, is not, he was not, it's a rebuke here, but he is, but this term, woman, is a term of great respect. But it's also, it's it's interesting that it is also telling her that her relationship to him has changed. She may be his mother, but she is not. She doesn't have anything over him. She can't, has no control on him. And that's kind of the way Jesus distanced her. Woman. Not mother. Woman. And it's not disrespectful. But then he says, what has this to do with me? 
woman, this is not what this had nothing to do with me. And then he says, very interestingly, my hour has not yet come. That is interesting. So this first mention of the hour is without any immediate or obvious reference. What did he mean by it? And here's, here is a literary device. I'm going to just teach you something here. This is a literary device known as a prolepsis. A prolepsis is a is a introducing a something that should raise the the reader's curiosity. What what's this? And then as the story progresses and it's filled out, then the reader's interest. Oh, here it is again. Oh, here it is again. Oh, here it is again. To give information on because the hour is important to John and his readers, and he wants you to follow it as it's developed throughout the gospel. So in this initial reference here to the hour, Jesus intended that Mary should understand, and I think this is very important, that she has no claim on him. You can't just come up and ask me to do whatever you want me to do anymore. I used to do it, I was your son, you know. I am your son. But our relationship has now changed. I'm no longer just your son. And and the significant thing is he's God's son. And the Father's authority is all that matters now. And his will. It's his will which is now the, the son's sole duty. Is the father's will your sole duty? See, you're a ch- if you're a child of God, he's made you a son. That's what John tells us in John one twelve. there. That's a, a, an amazing truth. Now are we the sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall... We shall see him as he is. We're, we are sons of God. And therefore, the will of God should be our sole interest. John chapter 6, verse 38. I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Can you say that? However, see... His hour has also great symbolic significance. And I don't believe this is an accidental situation. God has designed this for a reason. And John, although we don't see it immediately, when we study it out, it really becomes an interesting thing. And there are three things that I want you to see about this. It has a very symbolic significance. But the primary question is, what does this his hour have to do with the shortage of wine at the wedding feast? That should have provoked your thinking, and then you should have been seeking what is involved here. So Mary's request on the surface here is just a mundane request. The wine ran out. Will you do something about it? 
But the failure also has serious consequences for the bridegroom. He could even be sued by the bride's family for it. And as I stated previously, Mary could, may also have had some significant responsibility in the potential embarrassment. But Jesus' response takes it to a far deeper level, which is kind of typical of Jesus. So first of all, Mary wanted the host to suffer no humiliation. But Jesus saw this lack as reflecting the spiritual condition of the nation. The wine has run out. If you study the prophets, you'll see, see why. He remembered what the prophets predicted about the age to come, the messianic age. See, there's this age and then there's the age to come. The messianic age would be a time when the wine, which I believe is a symbol of spiritual vitality, would flow liberally. So we read in Amos chapter 9, verses 13 and 14, The mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. And I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and, in, and inhabit them. In other words, spiritual prosperity. And they shall build or plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make the gardens and eat their fruit. God says, this is going to be a time of abundance and prosperity. The Messianic Age. But just read the Gospels and see how far... Israel had fallen away from, from God that they even reject God's Son who comes in their midst and, by, and which, by the way, was, was illustrated in the parable of the vineyard. The king who had made a great vineyard and left it to, to the vine dressers and went away. And when it was time to seek uh, fruit from the, from the vineyard, he sent uh, his messengers to them and they throw them out of the garden sent them home empty sent prophets to them some they some they uh, killed and then the the owner said ha ah, I'll send my own son and the vine or the the vine keepers the, the vineyard keepers looked saw the son coming they said ha ah, here's the son let's uh let's kill him then the vineyard will be ours. Said, and then Jesus said, what, what's the king going to do to those vine dressers? And they were hostile. They said, they ought to kill them. But then they got to thinking about it. Said, I think he was talking about us. <laughs> yeah. Then secondly, here, the wedding itself. It's interesting that Ron should bring this up at the table again. I, I'm, I'm always amazed. But here's the wedding itself is symbolic of the consummation of the Messianic age. Where we read there in Matthew chapter 22 verses 2 and 3. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. 
And here again, the parable notes that those invited, I think, is Israel. But they all came up with an excuse. Ah, it's what's happening with the church today, too. The Lord invites his people to come to the feast. and ah, They've got this to do. They've got that to do. They're just not interested. Whatever. They wouldn't come. So what did the king do? He said to his servants, go out into the highways and byways and, and find whoever the, whoever's out there. You compel them to come in that my house may be filled. And again, this is Israel in her spiritual bankruptcy. The wine had run out. The king ordered his servants to go out and then compel as many as they could found to come in to fill the house. This is the work of the gospel age. This is what we're doing today. We're supposed to be doing today. But the hour of the great wine, his glorification, has yet to come. We are gathering them from the highways and byways in anticipation of filling the house at the consummation of the great wedding feast, for the, for the great wedding feast. Which, then thirdly, Jesus is identified as the heavenly bridegroom. Israel, as pictured in the, in the unknown bridegroom of Cana, See, he's not named. We don't know anything about he, that, this man. But he could not provide. He could not provide sufficient wine. Jesus, the true bridegroom, provided more than enough. There were six large water pots holding several gallons each. Fill them to the brim with water then take and draw out and take it to the governor of the feast and the governor was so amazed he said wow this is better than anything they served so far why why did they wait till now to do this that's jesus the heavenly bridegroom who provides more than enough and although his hour had not yet come, nevertheless he graciously provided for the deficiencies of this unknown bridegroom. He did so in anticipation of the perfect way that he himself would fulfill that role in the age to come. So we read in Revelation 19 and verse 7, Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Wow. So this brings us to ask, and returning to the text before us, we note here that Jesus now petitions the Father for success in that hour. When he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. So he's acknowledged that his hour had come. But he did not ask, and this is important, Jesus didn't ask 
that God would strengthen him or enable him or sustain him in that hour. He doesn't ask to escape the hour. Why you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, wasn't it in the Garden of Gethsemane that he said, if it, if it be possible, if you were willing, remove this cup from me? That's Luke chapter 22, verse 42. Jesus, and I, but I believe that what his, he said there was not that he was really wanting the cup to pass, but that he was anticipating the awful suffering that awaited him and naturally recoiled from the horror of it. Lord, is there another way? But then he immediately adds, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And that Jesus was not hesitant at all about going to the cross is clearly seen even in the Gospels when it says he set his face like a flint to go up to Jerusalem. He knew what awaited him. But he knew it had to be done. Jesus was fully determined to follow through and to redeem a people for his name. Even in the instituting of the Lord's Supper, which happened that very evening. Notice that. He picked up the cup of redemption in the Passover celebration and he said, this cup is poured out for you. Not this cup will be poured out for you. This cup is poured out for you. And what is that cup? It's the new covenant in my blood. My blood poured out for you. No, he's, he treated the act as if it had already been accomplished. And then his sole petition, glorify your son. And we've, as we've already stated, the hour, it, uh, he had already stated, excuse me, in chapter 12, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, Lord, do it. Glorify your Son. And wh what does that actually mean? What is it? I really believe that it has to do with the death itself. For he, had, he said there in the 12th chapter, Unless a, cr a grain of wheat fall into the earth and die, it, uh, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's verse 24 of chapter 12. He explained that self... And then he goes on to explain that self-preservation is not in uh, view here that it leads to self-destruction. So he, this is his comment. Whoever loves his life loses it. If he's interested in self-preservation, that's not going to work. And the same thing is true of you and I as believers. Self-preservation leads to destruction. Whoever loves his life loses it. And he rejected it. He said, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. That's verse 27. And at this point, he prayed, Father, glorify your name. 
the seed must die for the fruit to come. Lord, let it be. Make it happen. So how would the the Father glorify His name in that hour? And the, the answer here is God is sovereign in all things. Even in our troubled times. Even when we scratch our heads and wonder and say, what's going on? What's going on with this person? And what's going on with that person? And why isn't so-and-so here? And, and so forth. God knows. He's sovereign. So he asks the Father to make it work. His death. To succeed in, his, in the Father's purpose. So we read there in Isaiah chapter 53 again. Verses 10 to 12. Yet... It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, that is, the fruit of of Christ's death. He shall prolong his days by raising him from the dead. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see the fruit of his suffering, and be satisfied. You see, see his seed, the fruit of his suffering, and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he poured out his soul to death. That's why Jesus said, This is the cup of, this cup is the new covenant of my blood which was shed for the many. Because he poured out his soul to death and he bore the sin of the many. Wow. So we read in Revelation 7. Verses 9 and 10. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Yes. The Lord answered his prayer. Three things result from his dying. As we read as we read back there in John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. Three things. Now is the judgment of this world. He said, my hour's come. Okay, here's, here's, here's what's going to take place. The judgment of this world. You want to hang on to the world? I'd, I, if I, I'd really think, rethink that. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. The world's passing away in all of its lusts. But he that endu- does the will of my Father endures forever. Are you doing the will of God? Or are you loving the world? Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now, he says, will the ruler of this world be cast out? Satan's the god of this world. 
He tried to give all the nations to Jesus there in the temptation. And Jesus said, no. He said, all you need to do is fall down and just worship me. We're out here in the desert all by ourselves. Nobody will even see it. No. Thou shalt worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. Hmm. So now he's cast out. And then it's then thirdly it says, And when I am lifted up from the earth, that, that's his resurrection and ascension, will draw all, that is the redeemed, people to myself. So the purpose of the petition, glorify your son, is followed then by a purpose clause. That, it's a henna clause there, in order that the Son may glorify you. So the glorification of the Son was not an end in itself. In other words, the Father's glorifying the Son would result in God's being glorified. The Father made the death of Christ to succeed in its purpose as we noted above. So the Son sought glorification for no other purpose but the glorification of the Father. And that, you know, that's how we should be living our lives as well. Lord, glorify yourself in me. What can I do to bring you glory? Because that's the only thing that matters in eternity. Well, everything I put out in my energy for this world is going to come to nothing. And when it's all said and done, it's burned up and gone. But what I do for the Lord is forever. And Jesus is demonstrating this principle. He, rebu he had rebuked the Jewish leaders there in uh, John chapter 5 in verse 44 when he said to them, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? I mean, it was their worldly business that that uh, they were interested in and they were running around patting each other on the back for how wonderful they were doing and it says and do not seek the glory that comes from the only god these jewish leaders thought they were they were god's servants jesus said you're not you're not seeking his glory you're seeking your own and therefore you will not have any. So the argument then of the petition follows. The, the prayer then should be supported. Always when we pray we must support our prayers by with biblically supported argument. Why God should hear that prayer and answer it. And the petition then is linked to the argument uh, with, with the word since or like or as. And I, I'd like to, I, I like the translation, just as you have given him authority over all flesh. So, let me just reread that here. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Since, and it's the since in my in my Bible, or just as, just as you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all. Whom you have given to him. So five things here very quickly. Number one. His relationship to the father. Your son. Is expressed. 
Here's my standing. I, I'm your son. You need to hear me because I'm your son. This day have I begotten you. In Psalm 2. Then secondly, the commission and the goal of the work is stated. That he should give eternal life. This was the plan of God before the creation of the world. Because notice, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Ephesians 1.4 Then thirdly, those chosen in Christ before the foundation, that is, all whom you have given to him, are then regarded as a trust. Lord, you gave them to me. They are a trust from you. My business is to take care of them and to guard them. And to see to it that everything you want for them is, is accomplished. They were given to Jesus as a trust. So, fourthly, in light of this trust, a, 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 a plan, this trust planned before the ages, Jesus declared his obedience to the Father in carrying out the task. I have glorified you on earth. I took the trust that you gave me. I have obeyed you and everything in it. I have kept these people for yourself. And he'll state that later in the prayer. So he's called the disciples. He's discipled them. And these are the ones who will carry out the kingdom work when he ascends to the Father's right hand. And then fifthly, his obedience was successful. I have finished. Not I will or I plan to finish, but I have finished the work you gave me to do. That's verse 4. And then clear down in verse 10 and verse 22. I am glorified in them. Because I did, I did what you asked me to do for them and now, therefore I'm glorified in them. So this one petition established Jesus' claim in the eternal plan of redemption. That there is no embarrassment between the fact that God has sovereignly chosen a people for his name, redeeming them for himself, and then his purpose to, to give a general call to all sinners through the gospel and subjecting those who refuse that gospel to his eternal wrath. So then, let me close very quickly here the, with the fruitful son. The Father's will was clear, clearly upheld in the prayer. Jesus uses past tenses since his determination was to complete the task and it was certain. Two reasons are given to demonstrate this resolve. Number one, his authority over all flesh. In John 5, Jesus expressed his authority to grant spiritual life to the ones to, to his own. And then, in a final resurrection, to raise all the dead, either to eternal life or to eternal punishment. That's what he said there in John 5, verse 27. The Father has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of Man. The one described in Daniel 7 as receiving a kingdom. And so we read there all in verse uh, Psalm, Psalm 2, verse 6. As for me, I have set my king 
On Zion, my holy hill, and I will tell the decree, God said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. No wonder Jesus could command all his disciples there in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Or and it, just 18 and 19 here. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Do you believe that? It's not in Washington, D.C. Jesus Christ has all authority. And what is his command to you? Go and make disciples of all nations. And then his responsibility to give eternal life to those given him. To do this, he, he manifests the Father's name to them. Then he prayed for them, not for the world. That's verse 9. And then he desired and willed that they should be with him in glory. That's verse 24. So eternal life then is defined here. It says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life then is defined as knowing. And this here's this is important too. Very important that you understand. It's knowing the only true God through the Son. Knowing is an intimacy. It's like the Song of Solomon talks about. There's an intimate relationship. with the Father and with the Son that is continuous and dynamic and not just mere information. It is a personal walk with God. It is also eternal, not temporal in nature. So let me ask you the question. Do you know the Father in that personal, intimate way? Do you desire to dedicate your whole existence to the one who, who's etern the one eternal purpose of God, the kingdom of God, and do you, are, well, the are you doing the will of God in obedience to the Son in every aspect of your life? Is Jesus truly the Lord of your life, Father? What a prayer! Father, as we have gathered here this morning to consider that prayer, we ask, Lord, for the Spirit of God to open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to it, that we may see ourselves in it. And I would pray that if there's one here who does not know you personally, who has never been born from above, who does not have that assurance of salvation in his heart and or life, Lord, that you would save them today. And for your people, Lord, as we go out of this place to resolve in our hearts that we will also, like Jesus, want to do the will of God. And we'll praise you for it in his name.